in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 2. If you want to turn there, that would be a great idea. We're going to look at maybe a passage that is somewhat familiar to you, but I know God will use it in our hearts. It's that one where four friends help a buddy move. Remember that one? Mark chapter 2. And as I thought about the passage today of four guys helping a buddy move, it took me back in my mind to many, many different moves I've been part of. You know, I almost ran like a moving service, quite honestly, for a little bit of time in my life. Because at the time, I was the, the, I think, probably the youngest pastor at a kind of a large church. And I was the youth pastor. And so that meant I had, you know, just a quick phone call. And I could have several dozen young men who could maybe come and help me. So it was a regular occurrence that I would get a phone call from somebody saying, uh, Pastor Lowell, um, on Saturday we're moving. I-, I was wondering if maybe you get come, some of the teens to come and give us a hand. Some of you have maybe made that call you want to fess up to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about moving a little bit as we think about and move towards our passage today. I remember on this one occasion there was this house. It was in downtown Martinsburg. And I arrived there on one particular morning, and there was only one young man who came to help me. It was just me and another guy. And I come to the door, given a street address, I knock on the door, and I hear all these stairs. Doom, 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 doom. So now you already know, right? I'm like, okay, there's stairs. All right. Door opens. All right? And I can see I'm walking right into stairs. These aren't your normal stairs. Okay? Number one, they're very, very narrow. And I immediately recognize that there is a turn. As a matter of fact, it looks like several turns that are going up around. Okay? Stairs with a turn. All right. And the lady comes to the door. She says, you know, my friend is coming. There's only one thing we need to move. Just one thing. I've done everything else. Just one thing. Oh, good, good. said, probably a sofa, right? She said, yeah, yeah, it's a sofa. Okay, all right. Probably a sectional, right? Yeah, yeah, sectional. How'd you know? Just a guess. (laughs) Probably a sleeper, right? Yes, it is. A, A sleeper, sectional sofa. Up those stairs right there. So that for probably, it was at least an hour. We worked and worked and worked. And I'm on the bottom of one piece of this sectional sofa trying to get up around that turn the whole time. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? What am I doing? Now you might be here and listen, I might have helped you move. I look around, I see people, I've helped you move, all right? Yeah, several times, some of us, yeah. You might say, well, Lowell, why'd you do it? Why, Why do you help people move? Why do four friends come up and meet a buddy and help him move? Well, the answer is pretty simple. It's not real complex, I helped that lady move because I loved her. I helped my friend move three, four times because I loved him. 
I help because I love you. We're going to see in our passage today four friends who loved a buddy. And we're going to see how that should change our life. So you know we're talking about being a fisher of men. Jesus called these disciples to himself. We're in the Gospel of Mark, okay? We started in about verse number 13, 14, 15 or so. And we're seeing now that we're about a year and a half into Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry. It's about a year and a half after he was baptized. He's been out teaching and, and preaching and, and doing just a small number of miracles, quite honestly, prior to Mark 1.13. Only just a few miracles, mostly teaching. And with him are this group of, of men that are following him around and hearing what he has to say and, and seeing what he's like. And they're spending time with him. And then they separate. And then Jesus comes back into their life. And he says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And on that particular day, the first invitation in Mark chapter 1, four men left their business, left their life, left what they knew and began to follow Jesus. And he made them fishers of men. And we're here today because God's spirit used them and their message to transform the world. Now, we've talked about a few of the lessons that Jesus taught them. They're there on your worship notes if you want to remember what we talked about. Okay, We talked about the fact that it's time for them to get into the game. It was time for them. It's time for us. We, we can no longer just sit back and observe and be a spectator and even applaud at times. Good job fishing. That doesn't satisfy. And if that's where you're at, you're probably very discontent with your walk with Christ. God says, follow Jesus and he will make you fishers of men. It's time to respond. And so Pastor Billy has been challenging us the last three, four weeks with a means of sharing the gospel. It's time, folks. It's time. You need to have the conversation. You're going to bumble it. You're going to mess it up. That's okay because God doesn't save people because you're so smooth, because you're so good, because you know just the right thing to say or just the right drawing to draw. That's not why God saves people. God saves people because his spirit quickens their heart and dead people become alive. And they do it through the hearing of the gospel. So go ahead in your life this, this week, this month, tomorrow. It's time to get into the fishing game with Jesus and not be a spectator. I know you're nervous. I know. Me too. I get very nervous when I start to share the gospel with somebody. I, I make mistakes. I can't remember verses that I know like that. I, I can't, I, I'm worried they're going to ask me a question I don't know the answer to. I'm there with you. But go ahead and move forward in that conversation. No, and our second lesson was this, that the only hope that, man can, that mankind has is Jesus. That's it. There's no other hope. So don't dive into other issues as you're becoming a fisher of men, don't get into other conversations about politics and about, you know, the death penalty and all. Don't, don't go into all that stuff. Point them to Jesus. If they need Christ, if you're talking to an unbeliever who needs Jesus, point them to Jesus. 
He's the only hope. No method of, of what man can do. It's only Jesus. Because he alone has the power to bring new life. He alone does. We saw Jesus casting demons out at people, speaking with authority, because only he has the power and the authority to do just that, bring new life. But today, we're going to look at the real issue, and that is that it's all about forgiveness. If you're not already, turn with me to Mark chapter 2, and let's read this true account of an event that happened in the life of Jesus. I'm in Mark chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. I'm in the ESV. Follow along with me, and let's see what God does here. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. The he here is Jesus. He's at home. He's in Capernaum. This is the place now where Jesus is ministering. This is the the center of his ministry. This, This busy town of Capernaum. Don't think Nazareth with a few hundred people. Think a large Really, a city there in Galilee, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. A military installation, a tax office, fishing industry. And that's where Jesus sets up his ministry center. It's reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together. So there was no more room, not even at the door. Can you picture it? Jesus in this house, and there's people all gathered around. He's back. He's been gone. And he was preaching the word to them. I find that remarkable. People are here because they've heard the report that Jesus is in town. He's back at home. He's not not running a circus show. He's not up here doing magic tricks you know, clay birds made alive or, or healing left and right. He's, not, he's preaching the word. That's what people need. The word preach here just means to herald. It means to speak. Most often that word is translated speak, not preach. I'm preaching right now, meaning this word. But when you sit at McDonald's and draw out those three circles on a napkin, it's the same idea as this word. It's just heralding the gospel. It's just proclaiming it to somebody else. He's preaching the word to them. And they came. And they bring and bringing, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So now there's a guy coming who cannot walk. And four men are carrying him. They try to get in. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him and they made an opening and they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that concludes the first act. And it would be awesome if the passage ended right there. I honestly wish that it ended there. Because if it had ended there, it would have meant that the religious leaders that are around weren't opposing Jesus. They must be moving towards him. But it doesn't end there. And it rarely does, this side of heaven. This side of Jesus' return. It doesn't always just end there. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote that all who live a godly life in Jesus 
will suffer persecution. So that's going to be lived out right here as the God-man Jesus, who's 100% man and 100% God, is now going to be rejected, opposed, persecuted. Let's see how he handles it. Now some of the scribes, these are experts of the law, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Folks, you just heard the thoughts of a group of men. You recognize that? They didn't say this. They thought it. Mm. And immediately, verse 8, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Can you imagine how they felt at that moment? They're over here on the side watching, right? They're looking at one another with that you know, thoughtful look like, hmm, you know. And all of a sudden, Jesus, from up front, where all the attention is, now speaks to them. And he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? But he doesn't stop there. Which is easier, he says, to say the paralytic, your sons are forgiven, sins are forgiven, that is, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, you know the answer to the question, which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. It's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. That's much easier to say. I can claim that your sins are forgiven, but stand up and walk? Hmm. I wonder about all that. But he doesn't stop there. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He now looks away from them, looks to the paralytic, and he says... If I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. What a miracle this is. What a miracle. This is unheard of. Nobody's ever seen this before. Nobody's ever contemplated this possibility. This can't be possible. This is something we've all wanted to see happen. This is something we've all wanted to maybe even experience. But this can't be. And I'm not talking about the lame man walking. I'm talking about his sins forgiven. That can't be. How can sins be forgiven? Now we get all excited as we think about the paralytic standing up and walking. And I don't know how this worked. Have you ever seen someone who can't walk? A paralytic? Their legs don't look like yours. They're all shrunken up and small and just like bone as the muscle has atrophied. And they, they have not, their, their legs have no mass. If they stood up, they would break like on toothpicks. Have you ever seen the arms of a, of a quadriplegic? As they waste away to nothing? Have you been there by their side? 
as they can't even scratch their own head? I remember visiting a man one time who fell from a horse and was paralyzed from his neck down. Visited him one time. I knew him distantly. Had for many years, but we weren't close. He said, Pastor Lowell, I can barely talk. Pastor Lowell, can you, can you do me a favor? And I said, anything. What can I do? He said, can you scratch the top of my head? It's itching so bad, and it has all morning, and I can't do anything about it. I said, sure. Have you been there and seen someone in that desperate condition? Hmm. In this passage, in verse number 10, Jesus calls himself something. And I want to take just a moment and talk about this. Because throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus refers to himself, or, or really as Jesus is referenced, as Son of God, Son of Man, and Son of David. I want to take just a minute and, and let us understand a little bit what this means. Okay? Because it's is going to re- relate to where we're headed today. You can see in Mark chapter 1 that, that Mark refers, as, as Mark is recording here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When you see that the New Testament authors, the Gospels, refer to Jesus or any of the New Testament books as the Son of God, know that that is, a, that is emphasizing his deity, that he is God. He is of the same nature, of the same quality, of the same morphe, is the, is the Greek word of Philippians 2. He's exactly the same image as God, Son of God. He's not less than God, he is God. He's just like God. It, we, you understand that sometimes you'll say about somebody, oh, he's just like his dad. He's just like his dad. That's what the son of God is emphasizing. But also we have the son of man. And here Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. That was Jesus' favorite term for himself. You know that? That's what Jesus called himself most often. When he spoke of himself and would use a, a title, he would most often call himself the son of man. Son of man is emphasizing his, his, his humanity. That he is like us. He had to be made like his brothers in every way, Hebrews 2 said. He understands temptation. He also was able to die. That's what that means. And then we have the son of David. I want to just take just a minute as we move into Christmas and think about what this means. Son of David is emphasizing that Jesus is fulfilling the promise of God. That God made a promise to humans, to his creation. God made a promise. He would send the son of David. Now this is what the crowds called Jesus. The gospel writers and our New Testament authors call him the son of God. Jesus called himself the son of man. But when people saw him, they called him the son of David. Because they knew he was fulfilling the promises that God had made. Listen to one. This is in Isaiah 53, verse number 6. Now hear it. All we like sheep have gone astray. Is that you? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. It's our, it is literally our nature To go our own way, not the way of God. It is our very nature to go our own way. All we have done it. 
We have all sinned. But listen what Isaiah said. And the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. Onto the Messiah, God laid the iniquity of all. When you see son of David, know that's what it means. That God made a promise. He made a promise that he was going to bring man's sin problem to an end. And that's what we have in our Mark 2 passage. So let's walk through a little bit here and understand what it's about. First of all, you need to know that this account, the primary thing this account is teaching us is about forgiveness. It's about forgiveness, okay? We should probably understand what forgiveness means. When you were young, or if you have youngsters, would you make your children seek forgiveness? Did you ever do that? How effective is that really, okay? Little Johnny, you hit your sister in the face with a rock. Now go over there and you ask for forgiveness. And so it overwalks Johnny. I've seen it, okay? Four times many numbers, all right? I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Yeah, right. Is that what that means? Forgiveness means to dismiss. It means to be separated from. The idea, ha- the idea of the word is to depart from. To, to leave and leave the thing in place. So this, this word forgiveness means I leave this table. And when I go, I leave it there. To depart from it. It has the idea as far as the east is from the west, okay? That's that concept of forgiveness. And, and forgiveness is man's greatest need. That's the thing that you and I and all human beings need the most. Forgiveness from God. There are several Christian psychologists who have written that the number one thing that they bump into in their counseling services is helping people to understand that they have been forgiven for sins that they have lived in their past. And if you have any sins in your past, and I know that you do, you understand what a, a lack of forgiveness does. It brings it back to you. And you live it out in vivid, bright colors, don't you? It's sick. It's so sad. I can remember things when I was eight, nine years old. I can remember things that I saw and things that I did and people that I hurt. And I remember them right now, probably with more vivid detail than what I experienced them at the time. We need forgiveness folks. And that's why Jesus came. But not just us. That's what we got to see in this passage. We are not the only ones who need forgiveness. We cannot selfishly hold it for just us. You, the Bible calls you and me, clay vessels that hold a treasure. Broken Pots that have a message in us. And the message is the most important thing that the people you interact with are ever going to hear. 
And that is that there is forgiveness from God, that God forgives. Far as the east is from the west, God forgives. Okay, let's see how it played out here in this account. So let's read verse number one and two. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Now I want to call this a Matthew twenty-eight nineteen as you go moment. Okay? Now, Matthew 28 and 19 says this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, a lot of times in sort of our church settings, we misunderstand this verse. We misunderstand this verse. And we think it's telling us to go. We read that and say, okay, I will go. Where do you want me to go? And that is not what it means. When you get into the verb tense of the words of this passage, the command here is to make disciples. In reality, the go is simply modifying that command. Here's what it means. Literally, it means as you're going, as you're going, make disciples. That's what it means. As you're living your life, make disciples. And this is exactly what we're seeing here in verses 1 and 2. Jesus was away. Now he comes home. By the way, I find it interesting that it says he was at home. Did you catch that? Jesus was at home. He's a real person, folks. He didn't just like, you know, magically appear. The ghost is 10 town. He came home. He lives in Capernaum. This is his home. He knows people. They know him. They see him out in the yard. Hey, Jesus, how you doing, man? Have a good day. Did you have some turkey this week? I mean, these regular conversations. He's a person. He was away, and he was doing two things. We know from the rest of the Gospel of Mark, he's out preaching and teaching, so he's proclaiming the word, and he is healing many, many people. And so when he's home, the people come and try to find him. And what's he do? Well, as he's going, he makes disciples. So the obvious implication for us, if we're going to walk as Jesus walked, is as you're going this week, make disciples. If you're sitting around waiting to be sent out, you know, to some other land or some other nation or some other country or some other people, then you'll make disciples. You're missing it. This command was given to the mass of disciples. As a matter of fact, I'm of the opinion that Matthew chapter 28, 19 was, was given to a large group of people. Well, the Bible says over 500 witnesses saw Jesus after the resurrection. And I believe he's standing there and telling them, as you go, make disciples. This is you and me. This isn't just the hired professional Christians. It's just regular people. As you go. The church has made the mistake over and over and over of trying to hire people the priestly class, to do the work of the ministry. Quite honestly, it is what separates us from Roman Catholicism. The priesthood of the brethren, the priesthood of you, the believer, that you and I, as regular old people, are to live out this command. We don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. As you go. Make disciples. What's Jesus doing here? Be incarnational. 
Be in the world that you're in. And I would say this. Leverage the opportunities that you have. Leverage them. That's a business word, and we all understand what that means. If you're in business, if you're trying to sell something, all of your friends know it because you're always leveraging it, right? That's just the way it works. Why do we understand this so well in civilian pursuits and not use it for things that really matter? Why? Why is that? Leverage the opportunities that you have. The people you work with, the people you play with, the people you live with. Leverage those. I heard a speaker one time say this, and it just really hit me. He said, you and I are called to be. Now listen to this. These know I would never say this. These are big words, but listen to what they mean. We are to have a compelling and winsome quality in our culture. A compelling and winsome quality. I heard this guy say that, and I wrote it down because I knew it was good. And I went home and looked up that word, winsome. What's that mean? It means attractive. It means there's something about us that people are drawn to us because of it. Oh. So you're talking like 1 Peter 2.12. Live such good lives among the pagans that they may accuse you of doing wrong, but they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Oh, this is what we're living, folks. We're forgiven. Okay, let's keep going in our passage, though. Mark chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. Now, I would call this a John 139, come and see moment. Now, what am I saying here? Remember in John chapter 1, this is when Jesus first called the disciples Okay, he first calls the disciples. He bumps into Andrew and probably John. All right, the, the passage identifies one as Andrew and doesn't identify the other name. You can look at it in John chapter 1, verse 35 to 39. Jesus bumps into two disciples of John the Baptist and they get in this conversation. And part of the conversation is, Who are you? Who are you, Jesus? Who are you claiming to be? You know what Jesus says to him? Come and see. Come and see. You know what they did? They came and saw. They went and spent time with Jesus. And they became convinced. And you know what Andrew did after that? He went and found his brother, Simon. And brought a compelling and winsome quality. And said to Simon, come and see that I found the Messiah. Well, later on in that same passage, in John 1, 43... Philip has the exact same experience with Jesus. And then Philip goes to Nathanael and he says, come and see that I've found the Christ. Folks, that's our job. 
You know what these four friends are doing as they, as they lower? I mean, can you picture it? Now, understand, it's not a roof like ours, okay? They're not up there with jackhammers, you know, tearing out the concrete or anything like that. That's not what's happening. The, the, it's in that culture. It's very easy. As a matter of fact, it was a common thing to do was to open up the roof and bring things in, okay? I mean, it's something that you would just do. And so they tear open the, the thatch roof and they lower this man down. Now, that's unique, okay? That's unique, But what I want you to to recognize is how these friends, what they were doing. They were saying, we got to do whatever we can do to allow our buddy, our friend, the guy on the mat, they want him to come and see Jesus. He can't do it on his own, so they bring him. They bring him. The implication is so obvious, I'm tempted just to drive right past it. Who in our life, who in our life do we need to do what it takes to allow them to see Jesus? There are people in your life, folks, there are. Their names are coming to your mind. Their faces are there in front of you. You say, how do you know that, Lord? Are you reading my thoughts? No, I'm reading mine. And their faces are coming to my mind. And we need to do as these friends did. And allow them to just simply see Jesus. Now, it's very purposeful what we're doing here today. All right? It's very purposeful that Pastor Billy shared what he did with you. Not just today, but the last couple of weeks. It's very purposeful that we're coming into the Christmas season. Don't think this was random that we just, you know, went, Mark 2, that'll work. No. We, We planned as leadership. We want Christmas 2017 to be an opportunity for people to point people to Jesus Christ. And so we have done many things to provide opportunity for that. One of which was we spent five weeks on our personal evangelistic lifestyle. Another one is we've set up a series of things that are occurring, all right? Honestly, we've opened the roof wide open, folks. We've provided the rope. All you got to do is just let them down, okay? Just go, I mean, this is, this is low-hanging fruit now. Low-hanging fruit, okay? You can do this. You can bumble into somebody's presence. Hey, uh, how you doing? You want to come to church with me? You come in prayerfully. You come in with that compelling, winsome life that you have brought to your world. Folks, they're watching you. If you're a follower of Christ, they're wondering who you are. They see the fruit of forgiveness in your life. There's something about you. You're lighter. You're not not weighed down with sin, with the bondage of it. And they see that, and they're drawn to it. They don't know what it is. Oh, you're tempted to take credit for it. You know, I had a good father. I had a good mom. I had a stinky mom and dad, but I overcame it. You know, you, you come up with all kinds of things. I got a good job. I had a good education. You know, you come up with different things. It isn't that. It isn't. You're forgiven. We haven't got there yet. You're forgiven. Point them to Christ. Now, I want to say this. Just another brief little word here. How am I doing on time? Oh, man. 
There's other ways you do this too. And I want to take just a moment and just really champion these people. All right? There are people that are providing the rope and the opening of the roof so that we can point them to Christ. And I just want to publicly thank them. Let me, let me start with this first set. You know, there were a group of people here this morning setting up these chairs at 8.30 in the morning when, you know, you were like sipping that cup of coffee and thinking, ah, do I want to go to church this morning or not? This much we are setting up these chairs. You know why they were doing that? Not because they have to. Not because they were made to. Probably not because they like it. They did it because they love their Lord and they love you. It's kind of like me pushing that couch up those stairs. I didn't like it, not one bit. But I did it because of love. There are people right now down that hallway taking care of our children. They were here in a focus hour to teach your kids now, your snot-nosed little whiny kids that we all love, and they told them about Jesus. What a blessing. How blessed you are to have that. You have have adults now who love God and who are willing to invest in your children. That's a blessing. There are others that are down there holding, just crying sometimes, or quiet babies. There are people that led us in worship today. There were adults that taught other adults. There are, there are people that packed food. There are people that provided food. Do you see here? This is just within the church. There are people that are, they're, as they're going, and they're allowing people to see who Jesus is. All right, let me, just, let me get here to forgiven. Remember I told you it was all about forgiveness? We better talk about forgiveness, okay? So verse number five. Man's greatest need, God's greatest gift. It's all about forgiveness. Look what Jesus says. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now I find that just striking. Did Jesus know he was going to heal this man? I mean, I suspect so. I don't know. I really don't know. But he deals with forgiveness. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. You see, that is, that is man's greatest need, forgiveness. And it's only found in Christ. And we need to remember this, this harsh truth. God does not send people to hell because of sin. What did he just say? God does not send people to hell because of sin. God sends people to hell because of unforgiven sin. There's the world of difference. There's the world of difference. I'm a follower of Jesus. If I die today, I'll be with the Lord in eternity. But you know what? There is sin in my past and there will be in my future. I have to bring it before the Lord. So the lack of sin never saved anybody because it's impossible. It's the forgiveness of sin. On what right does Jesus have to say your sins are forgiven? The religious leaders of the day are going crazy and they're 100% correct in what they said. In what they're, in what they're revealing, it's, it's true. They were correct. Only God can forgive sin. They're exactly right. Only God can do that. They're exactly right that, that what Jesus was claiming was blasphemy unless it was true. This is what they're upset about. Now I want to ask you, what sins are being forgiven? 
What sins are being forgiven? Now, understand that in this day, you can read about this in John chapter 9. I had intended to go there, but we're out of time, so I'll just tell you. In John chapter 9, we see a, a thought of the day that still reveals itself even now. In John chapter 9, there's a man who was born blind. And there's all kinds of debate about who sinned, the man or his parents before him. I find it striking here that Jesus deals with that here. He says, your sins are forgiven, and the man's still laying there paralyzed. He's not getting up, but he's forgiven. That's how God's forgiveness works. It's instant. It's instant when we put our trust in Jesus. He's paralyzed, but forgiven. What a great truth. And that's our situation as well. I'm so thankful that God is, let me tell you what God has forgiven you for. He's forgiven you of your personal sin. These are the things that you do. These are any acts or attitudes that you have. Sin is any act or attitude that drifts away from God's moral law. An act would be stealing. An attitude would be coveting. When we, when we leave God's moral law in our acts or attitudes, that's sin. But that's not our only problem. You just don't have personal sin. Your very nature, our very nature is sin. We've inherited a sin nature in our very existence. We've inherited a sin nature that brings for us the penalty of sin upon us at the moment you're born. You're born into sin. Because of Adam's fall, we all fell. We call that original sin. Now, original sin is not what what Adam and Eve did there in the garden. That's not what original sin actually means. Original sin actually means that I am born guilty under the law. I inherit guilt. Thanks a lot, right? We need forgiven. But not only do I inherit guilt, now listen to this, I also inherit corruption. What that means is this. Because Adam sinned, all of man cursed, and we were born, not just under the burden of inherited sin, but also our very nature is now corrupt. And so in reality, now hear this and listen to this now. I'm not a sinner because I sin. Process through that. See it in your mind. Type it out, whatever you got to do. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. Now you might think I'm splitting hairs. That's because you don't realize the size of that hair. That's a big difference. My problem is not that I sin. My problem is I'm a sinner. And it reveals itself in my life. I'm not as bad as I could possibly be. I understand that. There are sinners that do some decent things. There are sinners that do some great things. But what it means that I've inherited guilt and I've inherited corruption is this. That every single thing that I think, everything that I feel, everything that I do is now tainted by sin. And I need forgiven. Just like this man. So Jesus brought forgiveness. And if you don't like the idea that we inherit sin, though we didn't do anything to earn it. You realize that, right? You inherited corruption and you inherited sin because of what somebody else did. 
And some people don't like that. They say, that is not fair. How can it be fair that I didn't do anything, but I got sin? I don't like that. I don't like that vicarious damnation. Whoa, what was that word? I don't like it. What that means is somebody else did it, but I get the credit. Adam did it, but vicariously it becomes mine. You get that? Well, if you got a problem with vicarious damnation, hmm, some of you know where I'm going. If you won't accept vicarious damnation, then vicarious substitution or vicarious atonement or vicarious salvation is not yours either. You see, you know why I'm righteous? Not because of what I did. You know why this man was forgiven? Not because of what he did. What did he do? Nothing. He's laying on a bed. All he did is just lay on a bed. He did nothing. He believed. And so now what Jesus did is he gave to him righteousness because of something else that somebody else would do. Vicarious damnation is necessary for me to understand so that I can get vicarious atonement. In my place, Jesus died. And in the same way that in my place, Adam sinned and I got it, is the same way that I get salvation. Let me show you this in the Bible and then I'm going to wrap up. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. Verse number 12. Here's what it says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, vicarious damnation. Okay? And so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Vicarious corruption. Adam did it, but it came to me. Now, it's fruit. It provided fruit, right? Personal sin is there. I'm going to sin, showing that I'm a sinner. Jump down to verse number 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You know all those people you know? You know all those people that you love? You know all those friends that call you and say, hey, I'm moving on Saturday. You want to help me? Those people you know and love? They've received. They have received. They have inherited sin. And you and I have the opportunity to point them to the one who offers them salvation. Now let's respond. Let's pray in Jesus' name. Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you because of Jesus. In his name we ask you, Lord, to give us eyes to see the world as you see it. People around us who need you, who need forgiveness, Lord, break our heart with them and then let us respond by faith and point them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.